0: Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tzerer, and now let's talk blockchain. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter, where we pre-stream each episode on Twitter Spaces the day before publishing on all major podcast platforms. For the platform list, visit our website, blockchainrecorded.com. Today we have with us Keone Hon. Kioni is the co-founder and CEO of Monad Labs, a team of system engineers bringing parallel execution and low-level optimization to the Ethereum virtual machine. Previously, Keone spent eight years at Jump Trading, building a high-frequency trading system for major traditional finance futures markets. In 2021, Keone joined Jump's crypto division and led a team of engineers focused on blockchain research and dApp development. So with that, without further ado, Keoni, welcome to Blockchain Recorded.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Nina.
0: Sure thing. So Keoni, um, you have an extensive background mainly in high-frequency trading, so in the in the trade fi space, which means building high-performance trading systems. I sort of quickly glanced at your LinkedIn to make sure that I understood everything that you did: machine learning, quant trading, etc. First things first, what brought you to the world of crypto and later on founding Monad?
1: Yeah, I graduated from college in 2011 and immediately went into the high frequency trading space. It's a really interesting place with, you know, just a focus on a huge amount of data coming back from the exchanges and basically the the problem, the problem statement is really just to find ways to digest that data and, you know, lasso this chaos into something that makes sense, uh, convert all this data into predictions about what's going to happen in the future. This was a really good experience. I learned a lot about building high-performance systems and building very low-latency systems. And those are kind of two separate axes because, you know, there's an element of scale, like just... Exchanges sending back hundreds of millions or, or billions of messages per day um, that one even that just one strategy has to digest. But then also for each of those messages, the system has to be really performant, really fast, in order to um, be competitive in this purely automated trading space. I spent a number of years doing that and worked with really great teammates. In 2013, I joined Jump Trading, which is a you know has grown into. Uh, a major player in the HFT space, and just worked there for, I guess, about seven or eight years on the pure HFT side. And one of the things that our team traded was cryptocurrencies, both spot and derivatives markets. So my first exposure to crypto was actually just an asset to trade that had really interesting correlation structure and so many different coins, so many different derivatives, so many different exchanges. But then over time, working on that and, you know, digging more deeply into the actual instruments being traded, that was kind of a, a transitional period for for me and the rest of, uh, of my team at, at Jump Trading. So spent a number of years doing trading, uh, both in the non-crypto side and in the crypto side, and then joined the crypto division of Jump Trading in 2021, um, where we're we immediately kind of pivoted and started working on DeFi, Mm -hmm. um, exploring different DeFi protocols. And um, that was kind of what got us really crypto pilled.
0: Just just tracking back to your decision and for getting into high frequency or HFT. um, What was the decision decision behind that? I mean, I'm just thinking back to you mentioned 2011, that in back then. um, I mean, uh, I'm, Much older than you are, so uh, I come from the banking side um, in terms of Wall Street. But I just I don't remember like in the early two thousands having just the conversation with the traders that I was just speaking with. High frequency trading was just super niche at the time. What was it like back then, and what is it like now? Is it still more of a niche, sort of a sub trading Mm -hmm. industry or sub industry within the trading industry, or um, has it gained much more traction? What would you say also in relation to, to the crypto world? Or does that have anything to do with it?
1: Yeah, I think it's still pretty niche. I think that the public mm-hmm. awareness of it has definitely increased over the years with the Michael Lewis book, Flash Boys, mm-hmm. which actually paints a really unflattering picture of high frequency traders, but, <laughs> um, you know, everyone loves right. a villain as well. So, yeah, I think it's, it's you know, people are a lot more aware. I think in the, you know, among new grads, you know, from CS programs, there's a lot more awareness now than than there was like 10 years ago. And probably the headcount overall for the industry has grown from, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm just making up numbers here. But I think in 2011, it was probably like 5000 people. And now it might be like 20,000 people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And was it more US Wall Street in terms of the high frequency? Or would you say now it's a little more geographically spread? Or do you know?
1: Yeah, I think the US is still the uh, you know the, the dominant, the most dominant mm-hmm. in terms of uh, yeah, most of the really big HFT firms are, are US centric. Mm-hmm. Maybe like have US founders, but American founders. But there are a couple of really big ones that are outside of the US. Like XTX is a um, really successful. Um, originally like focused on FX trading, um, and I think they've branched out to a lot of other markets. But they're lo- they're in London.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, there's there's some other um, players in the space.
0: So then, what made you what made you decide to fi- um, go for uh, or start Monad?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's a you know, just uh, thinking back on, on your previous question about like 2011, like how prevalent uh, you know awareness of HFT was then versus now. I feel like there's just this trend of automation, like you know, using computers to do things. Uh, it's just a very you know, natural, like obvious progression over time. Um, so in the early two thousands when and this is a little bit of a tangent, so I have to apologize, but I, I no, promise it'll time. get back to <laughs> it'll get back to your question. Sure. Yeah, in the early um, very early two thousands, like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, this is when exchanges there there were electronic exchanges before that, but this was when they first opened up and allowed You know, made it like the access to to these exchanges became a little bit more broad. And so actually all, you know, almost all of the successful HFT firms were all founded around the same time of 1999, 2000, 2001 or so. And it's because that was the moment when exchanges started letting outsiders in. Like Mm -hmm. you didn't have to have a membership or it was easier to get a membership. So it's kind of funny, in, you know, in the history of HFT in 2011, when I joined, it felt like it was pretty mm. uh, late, I guess, because, you know, the, these firms had already been around for 10 or 11 years. And when I joined, people were talking about like the heyday of, you know, 2003, 2004, like, and then the financial crisis had happened in 2007, eight, So there was just so much volatility back then. And the, the feeling was like, oh, you know, we're still doing it. But you know, that was crazy back then. And so I think the two themes that I kind of draw from that are one that the early days always has like this wild west feel, but then over time, it gets more mature, um, and and more scalable, and, you know, hopefully provides much better services to the end user than in the early days. In the case of HFT, that's in the form of much tighter spreads than, you know, in the early days of electronic trading. But then I guess the other thing is just that you know, it just gets more efficient. And so I sort of see crypto as being on a similar path where we had the, you know, really wild west days of DeFi summer in 2020. And before that, like, you know, the the first smart contracts getting deployed and the DAO hack and you know, just all of these things that have happened in our industry's past. Mm-hmm. And over time, the trend is obviously to get more efficient, more performant, better user experience um, in terms of DeFi tighter spreads for people interacting with um, decentralized exchanges. But it's all coming from better technology, better automation and you know, that sort of brings us to Monad, like why, why do this? It's because, you know, our our team felt that there was still a huge need to make the space more performant, and that a lot of other improvements would ultimately result from addressing the sort of most fundamental issue, which is the um, lack of transaction throughput in the Ethereum virtual machine.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and just just one more general question was I was fascinating with with the name with the name Monad. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Monad, mm-hmm. which I actually looked it up on Wikipedia because I didn't know what it meant. And uh, early early, it's I mean it stems from the Greek philosophers it, meaning, and also in, in Christian Gnostic belief systems, it means the One or the Absolute or etc. So uh, I gather it holds a an important meaning. In programming or computer science, as well.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good name. We we thought it was a good name for a number of reasons. One is that it's an uncommon common noun, Uh so you know it's like a real word, but it's not something that people have encountered a lot. Yeah, Um, it's always great name for for something. And then yeah, the the philosophical and um, biological. I think in biology, it it refers to like a single-celled organism or maybe even uh, more granular than that. In computer science, it's a term used in functional programming. Um, We actually don't do any functional programming um, in in monad like in the monad code base. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's some we used a lot of functional programming in the past in our HFT days. So I don't know. It gives us a lot of uh, street cred with like maybe five percent of the people we talk to. <laughs> who are like, oh, uh, monads cool. Uh, you know, I love mon- monads. Uh-huh. Um, so that's kind of a, a funny thing. But but overall, it's just a it's a good name that kind of captures the essence of of the project, which is to build a singular, really performant blockchain network that can help advance the space.
0: Yeah, so so let's dive into Monad. Your homepage description, uh, if and if I can quote, um, so you describe Monad as a decentralized developer-forward layer-one smart contract platform that ushers into a new paradigm of possibility through pipelined executions. So there's some key phrases there of Ethereum transactions. Tell us about Monad. What are you guys doing? What's your mission? And um, yeah, just if you could shed some light on how Monad is also different from other layer ones.
1: Yeah. When I when I think about the Ethereum scaling landscape, actually maybe first when I when I think about Ethereum, you know, Ethereum set out to build the world computer. That means that there are thousands of nodes spread all the way around the world, yeah, that all are perfectly synchronized with each other. They all have exactly the same state, meaning that they have all of the exact same applications installed, and each of those applications also has exactly the same application specific state. And this shared global state is what you know really enables everything. it's It means that developers can build applications and then upload them to this. Quote unquote to the blockchain, aka to one of the nodes, which then ends up propagating it to all the other nodes. And anyone can then go interact with those applications. The applications can provide useful financial services like a virtual bank that allows people to go deposit money, earn interest on their deposits. The bank can go loan that money out to someone else who needs a loan. So, you know, everyone wins because the bank earns the spread between the low rate on deposits and the high rate on um, on loans. The borrower gets a loan that they can do something economically useful with, and you, the depositor, get interest on your loan. So, um, you know, it, it's a thing, you know, businesses exist to unlock value um, and allow create a sort of win-win situation for everyone mm-hmm. and the cool thing about decentralized shared global state is that it can enable people to build applications that add value that create win-win situations for everyone. so that's like what ethereum does and it does it really well. It enables decentralized like truly decentralized applications that don't you know aren't subject to the you know whims of a single centralized authority. What it doesn't do as well right now and what a lot of people in the Ethereum space are working on through different efforts is the throughput of Ethereum is really limited right now. Um, Limited to about 10 transactions per second or a million transactions per day. And that's just very, you know, very constraining limit given that there's 8 billion people in the world. So literally, if all 8 billion people wanted to use Ethereum at the same time, like, you know, you could only use Ethereum, you know, Uh, 8 billion divided by 1 million. So like one every 8,000 days. It's not good. So there are a lot of people that are trying to help scale Ethereum in different ways. And I think of the landscape of Ethereum scaling as... You know, there's different verticals. There's people working on optimistic rollups, there's people working on zero knowledge rollups, there's people working on data availability solutions, there's people working on shared sequencing. And Monad is basically a new pillar in that landscape of Ethereum scaling efforts, which is an effort to make execution of the Ethereum virtual machine really performant. Mm-hmm. And we do that in a number of different ways, um, which which I can elaborate on more in a second, but I just wanted to mention that at outset that uh, Monad is a unique project because we're doing something that to my knowledge no one else is really trying to do which is enable really performant execution of the ethereum virtual machine um, as compared to other um, layer ones or other other projects where the focus might be more on you know proving systems like other fraud proofs or validity proofs or um, systems for storing data in a cryptographically verifiable way, a different, you know, these are different efforts that are all ultimately sort of pointing toward the same goal, which is to help Ethereum scale. Um, We have different approaches. And then one of the good things is that a lot of these approaches are actually compatible with each other. They're orthogonal. And ultimately, I think the future will be a combination of some of these different technologies put together. I think that Monad's execution technology will definitely be a part of this overall Ethereum scaling effort.
0: And it's not like you're competing against Ethereum. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, well, I, I know, just from my reading and from my research, I know that you, um, you get, probably get this question a lot and you actually, um, if I'm not mistaken, you wrote a Substack article because you mentioned roll-ups. <laughs> um, just for context, why is Monad not a roll-up? I know for the sake of decentralization it's one of the one of the first main reasons but I'll let you sure. um elaborate further.
1: Monad is a layer 1 meaning that it's a sort of fully independent blockchain system that provides the same interface as Ethereum both to applications and to infrastructure that's built on top of the blockchain so applications like uniswap or infrastructure like metamask or etherscan can work interchangeably with monad same as they could with ethereum and the reason for that is that we think it makes the most sense to build a full solution like a fully functioning system um, that can operate independently because that ultimately offers the best performance and the lowest cost to end users you know, it's really important to have a North Star. And our North Star is minimizing the cost of transaction execution, and maximizing the throughput that um, we can deliver like the number of transactions that the system can process while maintaining a high level of decentralization. And I mentioned that last part, because, you know, obviously, there's a sliding scale, like if you Choose no decentralization. If you just have a single centralized server, then um, it's possible to deliver really high throughput and really low fees trivially because you can just buy a really beefy server. And then also with a single node system, there's no overhead of communication between servers. And, you know, the world of decentralization that was introduced through Bitcoin and then Ethereum and you know, a whole lineage of projects that have shown the power of decentralized shared global state uh, means that it's very clear that, you know, that you know highly centralized kind of solution on the extreme end of the spectrum where there's only one server, that that doesn't actually really add value to, um, to what, you know, all of us in the crypto space care about, which is decentralized shared global states. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just want to emphasize that the way to get to both high performance, low fees, and a high level of decentralization is right. by making algorithmic changes to the software, to how the software behaves, to how the nodes come to consensus, to how transactions are scheduled and executed, all these like more intricate details. Because, of course, one could... Produce a high performance system by cheating effectively, by just having a single node, or perhaps by having the nodes all very close to each other geographically so that the overhead of communication is very limited. You see that sometimes with other systems. But having a f- truly decentralized system um, with hundreds of nodes, geographically distributed, that are all, you know, hundreds of nodes particip- participating in consensus, and then delivering that level of performance, that's what we set out to do. And that's you know, that's why we think the the work that we're doing is, is going to be, you know, able to move the space forward.
0: Yeah, before I ask you a little more um, in terms of w- what you're hoping to, to achieve and attract in terms of um, what kind of applications, I'm just curious, what's your view on the blockchain trilemma? I mean, do you think this is an outdated concept or is this something that you, um, in terms of conversation, have frequently? It sounds to me like essentially you are helping trying to solve sort of the problem of achieving all three pillars of the trilemma. Mm-hmm. But just curious what are you, what are your thoughts? because obviously decentralization is a huge part and then you want to tackle the throughput and obviously you know which part is is it still that you have to sacrifice one of the pillars or um, is that not relevant anymore?
1: The idea of this trilemma of decentralization, scalability, and security, Mm -hmm. you know, was like very eloquently articulated by Vitalik uh, a number of years ago and really like got a lot of Mm -hmm. attention and and, uh, mimetic mindshare. But I think over time that we've kind of seen, you know, I feel like he's walked that back a little bit or um, you don't hear about it quite as much because I don't think it was ever intended to be like an absolute rule, like... Sometimes I think I see people misinterpreting it where they're like, oh, the trilemma says that, you know, there are these three considerations. And therefore, if you have more of one, then you must be having less of the others. You know, almost like, you know, tautologically, that must be the case. You know, whenever a a project makes improvements that improve scalability, people are like, oh, it must be, you know, less decentralized because there had to have been a trade-off." And I I think that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that Vitalik and 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 others in the in the space like th- that was never intended to say like it's an absolute. It's like these are the three like you said pillars that everyone is trying to optimize with hopefully better and better system designs. Mm-hmm. And a better system design would indeed offer like you know more scalability without sacrificing on decentralization or more decentralization without sacrificing on scalability or you know like that is those are just the ways the ways that you measure the goodness of a system the usefulness of an innovation and one and maybe the way to say it is like an innovation that you know just trades one for the other is not is not really an innovation there's not a useful innovation so i think that that's that's the way to say it is that there's an efficient frontier between you know level of decentralization and level of scalability and we're at a certain point on that frontier right now and then hopefully the work that everyone is doing is going to help us go up and to the right um on that you know on that efficient frontier curve and get to a more efficient point a more efficient curve
0: yeah i like your answer (laughs) just in general um before we dive into more of the details what kind of application do you wish to attract or or meaning you know we're talking about high frequency trading and it seems like you want to tackle sort of that niche industry within what you're doing with monad there was a lot of talk in terms of optimizing the slippages right in defi trading compared to in tradfi my question is, is this kind of optimization actually applicable to other industry use cases, or are you made sort of majorly having HFT in mind?
1: It's definitely not just HFT. I think at the end of the day, any consumer-facing app that has that actually gets traction among non-crypto natives mm. um, and gets to a, like a pretty high level of success relative to an iPhone app is going to need a lot of throughput. Um, Like if you just think, you know, run the numbers, like a successful iPhone app that has, say, a million daily active users, um, say that the, you know, the average user is transacting 100 times per day. Um, And maybe that's a lot, but depending on the kind of app, that might not actually be a lot. Like if it's a game, it's very easy to imagine that there's 100 transactions happening behind the scenes per day per user. So that's 100 million transactions. But 100 million transactions per day is 1,000 transactions per second. I think one thing that happens is, because in the crypto space, everything is measured in transactions per second, rather than transactions per day, we kind of lose sight of the scale of um, traditional tech applications. And, you know, in in traditional tech, everyone's talking about daily active users. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's it's a lot easier to reason. So yeah, just to say it again, a million daily active users, 100 transactions per user per day is obviously 100 million transactions per day, but that's 1000 transactions per second. And from you know what we've seen like nothing right now delivers 1000 transactions per second 1000 transactions per second is 100x the throughput of ethereum right now so you know a lot is needed in order to help blockchain scale to the point where they're the back end for a successful consumer facing app and that's just one app like you could imagine that there's an entire ecosystem of apps that are coexisting and uh, composing on top of one another and yeah, I think it's just, it's clear that much more is needed.
0: Okay, so how exactly are you solving, how exactly are you going about everything in terms of, you talk about rebuilding the execution stack from the ground up? Can you just maybe first set the stage and explain, well, you, you've sort of alluded to some of the bottlenecks already in today's blockchains, but how are you solving it? How are you going about rebuilding from the ground up? And by all means, you can you can get as technical <laughs> as you would like. <laughs> it's not it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a question for for a long-winded answer. So
1: yeah. So most blockchain systems kind of c- consist of two major components, which are consensus and execution. Consensus is the problem of keeping hundreds or thousands of nodes in perfect sync with each other, so that they're all perfect replicas, mm-hmm. while execution is the problem of actually executing the, the transactions, which are generally calling smart contracts, so executing the bytecode that um, each of those smart contracts is implemented as and making the appropriate state changes. Mm-hmm. In existing systems... There's generally pretty tight coupling between the execution component and the consensus component. And in particular, in most systems, execution is a prerequisite to consensus, meaning that when a block is about to be produced, the leader among the, all of these nodes basically executes the list of transactions and then produces a block, which is a, those, that list of transactions, and then kind of like a, a checksum of all of the state that is after those transactions have been executed. And the other nodes receive that block and then go execute the transactions as well, um, check that they got the same result, and then vote on whether or not they agree with that result And then this voting, it kind of like, you know, this is uh, communication again across the world among geographically um, separate nodes. This voting goes on for a little while. And then at the end, the nodes come to consensus, finalize that block, and then move on to producing the next block. So that's kind of how a, a traditional blockchain system works. And I wanted to mention that just to set the stage for Uh, Monad, because a couple of the changes that our team has implemented um, have some different properties that ultimately allow, um, that unblock a lot of existing bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess the four major innovations of Monad I'll describe really briefly, um, all kind of have a similar theme, which is the theme of pipelining. Pipelining is the practice of building stages of work that can occur in parallel um, while processing, I guess like streams of work that you know might might otherwise be sequential. So I think if you if you think about an oil pipeline, which is where the, I think the term came from, you know you could imagine sending some oil down the pipeline from the start and then waiting until it reaches the end point and then before you start sending more oil down. Pipelining is the practice of building sort of like intermediate uh, stations, I guess that. Um, can receive like some of these like shipments of oil, and then kind of like stage them, and then send down the next stage of the pipeline um, when it frees up. So the act of putting these intermediate stages in there um, means that it's no longer the case that one has to wait until the first shipment gets all the way to the bottom of the pipeline before sending the next one down. Instead, you could um, you know just send. Uh, shipments down each like portion of the pipeline, you know, as soon as the previous shipment clears um, from that stage of the pipeline. And you see this also in in computers, like the CPU maintains typically a or traditionally a a five stage pipeline where um, in order to execute machine instructions, there's all these different stages for fetching the instruction, decoding it, executing it, Um, updating the um, registers, and then committing stuff back to memory. These five stages allow multiple instructions to get executed in parallel, where each instruction's execution is sort of in different stages through that pipeline. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, hence the parallelization.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, I think I w- you know wanted to mention those uh, that you know kind of these yeah. analogies because I think that helps to explain absolutely the flavor of the changes that um, you know that our team is making in Monad. Yeah. So ultimately, the, all four changes have this flavor of you know we have a process that is you know pretty like chunky in terms of the work that needs to get done, and if you wait until the work is completely done before starting on the next chunk, then, you know, it's just going to be pretty inefficient. So if we can somehow like Mm -hmm. create sub stages within there, and then start working on the next unit of work, you know, for the first stage, while the or for the second stage, while the first stage is processing the next chunk of work, then, you know, we can get stuff done a lot more efficiently.
0: That totally makes sense.
1: Cool. And so, the four major areas where Monad introduces pipelining, I'll mention them really briefly. Mm-hmm. Pipelining within the actual consensus mechanism, um, pipelining between how consensus and execution interplay, and in particular, creating you know this two-stage pipeline of ex- of have consensus first and then have execution. The third area of pipelining is in the optimistic parallel execution of transactions. And the fourth area of pipelining is pipeline state access. Um, So we have a custom state database that, you know, batches reads and writes and alleviates a big bottleneck in transaction execution, which is actually going to the SSD, pulling state associated with a particular smart contract. That's really inefficient. And this custom state DB that that we've built is a lot more performant. So ultimately, all these changes allow basically the the gas limit for transactions, um, for Ethereum transactions run on Monad to be much, much higher um, than it is on Ethereum, thus allowing the Monad system to process many more transactions in the same amount of time compared to Ethereum or other blockchains.
0: Yeah, um, before I ask you, because you, you've talked about the pipeline execution system and then wanted to ask you about the, your consensus and you just mentioned the transactions. So you're aiming for... 10,000 transactions per second. And what's the thesis behind that? Like, why 10,000?
1: Yeah, 10,000 is more just driven by the performance that we see. Okay, But it is a good, you know, it's a good round number to, you know, to come to market with, with the first version of Monad, because we think that it's the right scale where it makes a really meaningful difference for um, allowing decentralized applications to scale. This ten thousand transactions per second is about a billion transactions per day. Mm-hmm. You know, which is on the order of um, payment processing uh, systems like Visa, or um, you know, on the order of the number of messages that a major stock exchange or futures exchange ends up processing per day.
0: Right what would be Monad's transaction finality? Has anyone asked you that question?
1: Transaction finality is single slot, meaning uh, one second. You know, you you always hear about slots in the context of finality. That's um, So it just means that when a block is proposed by the leader, then all the other nodes go vote on it. And then once they come to consensus, meaning two-thirds of the network has agreed upon that block as being an official block, then at that point, the block is finalized. That official transaction order is finalized, and no reorgs are possible. Um, meaning that you know there won't be another block that's produced at the same height. Um, that that block that history is now enshrined into the official history of the blockchain. Um, and that's a little bit different from um, Ethereum, which has um, roughly 12 to 18 minute finality. Um, it's different from uh, Solana, which has like 32 slot finality, where I think each slot is about 400 milliseconds. So mm-hmm. yeah, so about like 10, 15 second ish finality for Solana. Um, so just you know, it's it the finality is quite fast.
0: Mm-hmm. So in terms of consensus, now that we're we're sort of getting into the topic, so as I understand, most of the existing consensus mechanisms are quote unquote leader based, and you just talked about the 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 pipeline component before. So Can you talk about how Monad is... Or monad. Sorry, I, I think I keep mispronouncing the, the name. It's, monad. it's my
1: fault actually, because I didn't I didn't really uh, contest <laughs> it at the beginning. <laughs> no. So you're right that it's in the dictionary. It's monad, but we we always say monad.
0: Monad. Yeah. So I guess we'll, let's go with monad. I don't know why I put the emphasis on the mo. So, so like I said, as, as far as I understand, most of the existing um, mechanisms are leader based. So how is monads different? What you were talking about, you have the uh, sort of the pipeline flavor. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, monads is also leader-based um so ethereum's consensus is leader-based solana's is leader-based okay algorand's is leader-based yeah uh tenderman is leader almost all blockchain systems are leader-based um and so there's sort of several major components one is the leader election process uh, which is like how the schedule of you know leaders ends up getting chosen typically in in most systems it's um it's done periodically like at the end of each epoch where an epoch is typically like a day or you know potentially a couple of days that leader schedule is decided and then agreed upon by everyone and then you know they're everyone's just going to follow that in terms of you know for the next day or for the next 3 days um how blocks are going to end up getting produced i think that part is a little less interesting in monad so i'll kind of skip over that but the second part is that as you said there's a rotating leader schedule so when it's a particular node's turn to produce a block um and and by the way the uh, monad is a proof of stake uh system so the basically um every every node that wants to participate in consensus has to stake staking tokens in order to volunteer to be chosen as the leader um, in order to, like, like, the leader election process is stake-weighted. So the more that is staked, the more likely uh, a node is going to be chosen to produce the next block and be the leader. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when a node is chosen as a leader, then there's sort of this uh, choreographed dance that happens where um, that leader assembles a list of transactions that um, are going to be enshrined into history, as the next, you know, sequential list of transactions that happen, the leader sends that that list as well as some other um, auxiliary data to all the other nodes in the system. The other, or sorry, to other um, nodes that are participating in consensus. So the other nodes that have, have uh, staked tokens in order to participate. And then those other nodes basically send an acknowledgement back to the leader um, that they received that block proposal and that the you know the proposal has valid signature and um, follows all the other validity checks. At that point, the leader assembles all of these acknowledgments into a thing called a quorum certificate, which is you know basically like proof that all of these other nodes have um, received the original proposal and have acknowledged it um, and. You know, sent a signed acknowledgement back to the leader. The leader, so again, like the leader sends out the proposal, the other nodes acknowledge it. Now the leader is assembling those acknowledgements into this thing called the quorum certificate, which the leader then sends out to all of the other nodes again. And then at that point, the nodes receive that. And then at that point, the nodes communicate to each other to vote on whether they vote yes or no on that proposal, and then their votes end up getting accumulated by the leader and packaged up. And if um, two-thirds of the stake weight has voted yes, then at that point, that's proof that that proposal has now um, reached that two-thirds consensus um, and is now officially enshrined into the blockchain. So that sort of sequence of you know, and it sounds more complicated than it than it maybe sounds like it needs to be because you know why isn't it you know why was there that acknowledgement step? Um, all of that is there basically as protection against um, a malicious actor. Um, so, in particular, it's the you know very roughly speaking, the acknowledgement is there to. Establish that all of the nodes, all the other nodes in the system have received the valid proposal. So they're able to vote. Um, They're able to like come to have a quorum. And then the second round of voting is there to actually do the voting. So ultimately, this is here for safety against kind of malicious behavior. For example, a leader only messaging the proposal out to a small subset of nodes or Uh, part of the network coming under attack and not, you know, being able to communicate outward due to like getting DOSed by an external actor or something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, who can validate and run a validator node? Like, can anybody do that? Or would you need to be an experienced developer with... I don't know, access to more uh, sizable resources or or whatnot, or can just be like anybody with with a computer.
1: Right. It's a permissionless system. So anyone with a computer can download the node software, compile it for their machine and run it. Mm -hmm. And when they run it, then, Mm -hmm. you know, their machine becomes a monad node and starts listening to network traffic and updating the, maintaining the state, updating the state. It's yeah, completely permissionless. Um, the only, you know, other thing to point out is that in order to participate in consensus, um, one needs to stake tokens. So, you know, you would need to acquire the token somehow and then stake them or get other people to delegate their stake to you. Um, and so there's, there's a, you know, kind of uh well-established set of business practices that validator companies have for you know, proving that they're really good at doing validation and contributing back to the community in the form of informational guides or, um, you know, diagnosing, troubleshooting, diagnosing issues, things like that that ultimately build their reputability, which allow them to, you know, show that they're a good validator that um, someone, you know, should stake with. But yeah, there's there's sort of like multiple roles in this in this environment. One of them is the actual node runners who then might be like, you know participating in the in this validation thing where they get other people to stake with them but also like as a just a normal end user you don't have to run a node in order to participate in the network like you you can actually just delegate to other other people like delegate to one of these validation companies one of these node runners and then still contribute to the economic security of the network in that way
0: mhm mhm you briefly alluded to the transaction costs that we all sort of uh, face in in the blockchain world. So high performance applications are obviously more gas heavy. What's your approach to transaction costs? And I don't know. Feel feel free to give background uh, understanding of 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 the transaction cost challenge. Um, it's totally up to you. But just curious, how is Mona tackling that?
1: Yeah. So I guess maybe the thing that I'll say is you know when executing transactions, there are a couple of different resources that Um, ultimately are are the resources of the network that have to be taken into account. So one is the bandwidth of the the individual nodes that are in the network. Another one is the computational capacity, like the, the CPU throughput. And then another one is the access to the actual state. So state is stored typically on SSDs. On the nodes, um, SSDs are quite fast compared to hard disks, um, but they're still, you know, on the order of um, like tens of microseconds to pull data from the SSD. Um, so it's not completely free and. You know, blockchain systems that support smart contracts. You know, starting with Ethereum, basically have a resource pricing mechanism where you know you can write a program that does anything, and then each of the individual opcodes in that program um, costs a certain amount of compute units in order to execute. And you know, reading from disk, aka the S load opcode in the Ethereum virtual machine, you know, that costs more compute units than doing simple arithmetic like addition or subtraction does, because it's actually going to the disk to, you know, make that call. And then, you know, S S Store, which is the opcode that puts data onto the disk, is even more expensive because um, it's doing a disk interaction and it's potentially, you know, increasing the overall amount of state that's stored on the disk you know it's it's consuming a limited resource so you know that's that's the design philosophy of the ethereum compute costs that we're just measuring the complexity the amount of work that the systems are going to have to do and charging users for it that's the context for ethereum uh, compute units and i call them compute units but then the actual official term is gas i just think that (laughs) compute units are sort of more clear yeah so I, i i call them that in Monad, we're making these compute units a lot cheaper because um, ultimately the just due to the different optimizations that um, our team has made both to the actual execution and then also to the state um, storage and to other components of the system. It means that um, the system is is capable of doing a lot more, and therefore, you know, our expectation is that. You know, for a given unit of time, like for you know, you know, one second period of time, uh, the Monad system will be able to process a lot more work than Ethereum system does. So the compute unit limit per second will be much higher. Um, so that's that's really you know a long-winded way of explaining the the question about costs. That at the end of the day, with Ethereum, it's you know resources are just. You know the average transaction is the, is the complexity from a compute unit perspective is just measured, and then there's a fixed amount of compute units available every second. It's about um, a million units of uh, compute units, aka gas, per second. In the Monad system, we also have this compute unit system, but the limit is just going to end up being much higher. Um, we expect about a thousand x higher because of these improvements that we've made that just allow us to do a lot more work.
0: Right. You strive for a much larger factor. So a thousand times the throughput and thousand times cheaper fees. Did I, did I, did I do my homework (laughs) correctly? (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so the fees, that's the thing is the, nobody really knows what the fees will ultimately end up being because that's more just settled by the market. Right. But I think, you know, intuition suggests that if there's a resource that's like very scarce and a lot of the high cost of that resource is coming from the scarcity of it, which is true in Ethereum. Like, there, you know, there's more than a million gas of compute requested per second, um, but that's the, the, that's the maximum capacity of Ethereum. So, you know, the price just kept, kind of keeps getting bid up um, until it reaches equilibrium. And, you know, a lot of users ultimately end up getting priced out of using Ethereum because they're not willing to pay whatever that market clearing price is for compute. So I think, you know, intuition suggests that if, you know, in an environment with 1000x the, uh, the gas limit that cost should be at least a 1,000 X cheaper, probably more, honestly. But mm-hmm. um, it's because you're going from a system that's very, very constrained with very high sort of like market bidding effects to one where there's, you know, much much less of a limitation on compute.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for that. Just m- moving on, what's your view of app chains? So just for our audience, those are application-specific blockchains or specialized layer-1 solutions. Do you think, well... Is Monad? Well, will Monad adopt this approach? Are you looking into that? Is this something that you're considering? Or, and if so, how would this work?
1: I think the the context of how app chains have gained some amount of popularity in the market. I would I would still say they're not really that popular, to be honest. Um, I think the most prominent example right now is DYDX mm-hmm. um, launching this Cosmos app chain, um, but it's not not actually live yet. But I think the context of it is really that you know, for applications that kind of a modest level of adoption, then, you know, when they're in an environment where um, gas is quite expensive, and that cost becomes an impediment to their app going viral and getting used by a lot more users, then that's the point in time where, you know, the team behind the app, or, or the DAO, like starts to think about, you know, moving to a new environment where that Applications, transactions are not um, competing with every other kind of transaction on the blockchain for a block space. So it's really motivated by scarcity. It's really motivated by high costs. I personally think that most app developers don't want to, you know, they don't want to maintain a decentralized validator set and have to go through, you know, like the procedure of when the network needs to upgrade. And then getting all the validators to upgrade their code to agree to up, upgrade their code at the same time and dealing with, you know, potential network outages, diagnosing bugs, uh, taking patches from upstream. Because the, the app chain um, space is basically, you know, there's a common uh, piece of software. In the case of um, Cosmos chains, it's the Cosmos SDK GitHub repo. That's being constantly actively developed and then, the specific app chains are kind of pulling from that, like pulling their code and incorporating those changes into the specific app chain's source code. And so, you know, it's not free, like, maintaining that. You have to, the individual developers on that individual app chain have to review changes that are coming from Cosmos SDK and say, like, yeah, we think that this is safe. We're going to op- we're gonna propagate this to this specific app chain. So just a lot of operational overhead. And I think that right now maybe for certain teams that might be attractive just because the cost of gas is so high that uh, you know in ethereum that you know it's worth it to like maintain a separate environment where the transactions for that app don't have to compete with everyone else but i think in an environment where well i mean that that's really the the mission of monad is to push the limits of compute substantially forward so that then for all applications, for all users, it is extremely, extremely cheap to use Monad and therefore, or to, to build a decentralized application. And therefore, you know, they won't have to take on this additional operational burden of maintaining a distributed validator set, deciding when to upgrade code, dealing with outages, all of this other stuff. I'm
0: just curious, how big is your team now?
1: Our team at, at Monad Labs is about 20 people right now. I think we're 22 officially.
0: Okay. And how many of those are devs? <laughs> Ninety nine point nine.
1: It's. Uh, I, th- I would say it's fourteen of the twenty two.
0: Mm-hmm. This is super interesting, Keoni. Um, just just thinking because you've definitely set out on a pretty important and yeah very prominent mission. Just curious, what do you at this point? You're you're in Testnet. What are what have been what do you, what would you say have been your biggest challenges?
1: I think the the biggest challenges have been uh, prioritizing, and this is maybe just a comment more generally about any any early stage startup. Mm. Um, you know, there's like a, a myriad of things to work on. There's a lot of features that we think would be nice, but sure. maybe not the absolute most pressing. So just sort of stripping down the effort to the most minimal thing that you know still addresses the core issue that we perceive in the space, um, which is limited transaction throughput and putting together the, you know, that is the, that is the North star, but then identifying like the sequence of all of the little things that need to get figured out in order to make that happen. That's been the, you know, it's an execution challenge. And Mm -hmm. I think more generally our space is still very, very young. It's still very new, you know, because everything moves so fast, it feels like, you know, it feels like it's been in existence for a long time, but um, you know, if you think about it, like Uniswap was only created in 2017, 2018, you know, DeFi basically didn't exist until that roughly that point in time. And then DeFi summer is like mid 2020, you know, and then at that point, like everything was just so crazy that it's still only been a couple of years for, for DeFi and only a couple of years for like usage at the scale where it's really breaking right. the limits of of what exists right now. And it takes several years to um, enact real technological change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's like, uh, just an anecdote in general is that I definitely feel the space is going to get more performant, more mature over time, but it, it takes time to make those changes.
0: Yeah. And just like, uh, I feel like I'm echoing sort of a cliche statement where we're super early, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's all exponentially happening so, happening so fast. Um, it's kind of hard to, uh, to keep track of everything, even though, you know, some of us are, are, uh, have been in the space and are following, but it's just impossible to follow everything. But yeah, I like, I like the fact that you're transparent in saying that organization and prior, well, prioritization is, is, a, um, is, is a hurdle. Well, we've sort of, I think we're close to wrapping up, Keone. I hope I didn't exhaust you too much with uh, picking your brain. So you are in testnet now, as far as I understand, and mainnet is on the horizon for 2024. Is that, am I on the right track?
1: Yeah, Mainnet's in is absolutely on the horizon for mid-24.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we're pre-testnet right now.
0: Oh, okay, pre-testnet. So
1: everything is just purely internal, mm-hmm. but uh, looking to ship the testnet by the end of the year.
0: Awesome. Well, is there anything that I have not asked or maybe have forgotten to ask that you'd like to add for for our audience to take away? There's a lot that <laughs> we covered.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree with what you said about the the fact that we are extremely early. I mean, I would just emphasize that, you know, smart contracts haven't really been, you know, a- adopted at, at scale up until pretty recently. And, you know, a lot of best practices are still getting identified. I, you know, there's also like, you know, put, there's there's false starts and there's there's wrong turns in any kind of research. Like, you know, with scientific research, there's so much stuff that I feel like the LK99, um, like the ambient superconductor stuff that was being talked about a couple of maybe a month ago or so is a good example where there's just like so much research and so much R&D that goes on that doesn't really, you know, it's just like, you know, there's the LK99 people were working on that for like 20 years. And so I think that maybe one issue that I kind of see in the space is because everything is, you know, publicized very heavily ahead of like, uh, release. And then, you know, everything is like so financialized. And then there's like, you know, it's a very like the building, the build in public is is good. But it's also it means that like you're, you know, the public is getting exposed to a lot of efforts like that are still at a very early stage in terms of maturity of the technology. So we do end up seeing a lot of these sort of false starts or focuses that end up changing over time, such as um, like in I think in the Ethereum scaling roadmap, like for a number of years there's the plan to like focus on sharding as the end game. And then, you know, more recently, like I think a couple of months ago, Ethereum changed their website to officially reflect that the approach is now very roll up centric rather than sharding centric. They basically you know put sharding to the side. So I think that, you know, all of that is just to say that I think we will get to a place where um, there are really scalable decentralized apps and decentralized systems. There's still a number of problems to solve. I think some of the problems still to solve are um, user experience, like um, making it easy for people to interact with the blockchain without signing transactions every single time. Right. Uh, mobile has to get a lot better. Um, fiat on-ramps, off-ramps have to get a lot better. Transaction throughput and gas fees have to get a lot better. And then security has to get a lot better. We can't have all of these um, DeFi hacks happening all the time.
0: Right, absolutely.
1: If we address all these issues, then um, we can get to the point where blockchain is the underlying financial rails, the underlying settlement rails for potentially all of finance. But we're very early right now because we're all kind of just, you know, dog fooding this. We're trying, you know, people are building new things and then we're trying them out. And I think as long as we have clear um, vision on what, you know, as an industry we're trying to get to and then what the problems are to solve in order to make that possible. Um, and then different people who are working on different of those problems can have that level of focus where they are able to solve the specific, like one of those five or six things that really need to be solved. Then that's the point where we won't be saying like we're we're super early. Like instead we've ushered in this this new technology at mass scale that does solve a lot of problems.
0: That was very well said. And, uh, I agree. And just like what you said in terms of science, you know, there's certain concepts that have been worked on for years or decades. And like we say, science has never settled. Right. So I think we could probably apply that to, um, not to say crypto space because it always gets like a negative connotation, but just, uh, just basically what we're trying to do here. And, um, yeah, absolutely. I uh, definitely agree with, with what you said. So, well, Keone, thanks so much for, for this conversation. What's the best way to follow your work or contact and, of course, um, or participate, etc.? What's, what's the best place people can, uh, can either reach you or, or read up about, um, about your project? Besides listening to our podcast, of course.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, our website is monad.xyz. Mm-hmm. So that's mona dot X-Y-Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Twitter, we're monad underscore X-Y-Z. And then you could probably find me from there as well. But I'm H D on Twitter, K-E-O-N-E-H-D.
0: Awesome. Well, Keone, thanks so much again for talking with me today um, and giving our audience a better understanding of um, Monad and its... Layer One mission uh, plus, you gave us a little direct uh, high frequency high frequency trading 101 crash course <laughs> for the people who are not familiar familiar of it. Um, so I'd say keep up the focus. Um, I think you've, you got what it takes, and and all the best with furthering test net and then mainnet in 2024.
1: Awesome, thanks so much for having me, Nina. I
0: had a great time. Sure thing, sure thing. Thanks, Kioni. All right. Thanks again to our guests, and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks also to the Bariam Music team for providing their music. You can check them out on bariammusic.com. All of the supporting information is on our website, blockchainrecorded.com. You can listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter and YouTube, where we are super grateful for your support. Stay tuned for our next episode.